for creation breathed its first breath and all that was to be was not yet you were seated there on your throne high and glorious God alone, you're the one I worship and adore. Every moment leaves me wanting more. In your presence, I am overcome. I sing your praise at the top of my life.
Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys stand up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning.
Well, good morning, Carpenter's Way, or what's left of you. There are dozens and dozens of our family members that are some in Brazil and some in Guatemala right now beginning to do ministry in those regions. And they left, uh, well, our Brazil team left on Friday, our, our Guatemala team left yesterday, and everybody made it safely and adjusting to time zones and on the river, the Amazon River. So we will be praying for them this morning. Uh, and in your worship guide, in the insert, on one side is the list of those in Guatemala, and another side is our Amazon team. Please be praying for them. I got a picture last night of Beverly and Charles Kent teaching at a conference there. I, I didn't know they were going to do a conference. They don't tell the pastor anything. But uh, we want to be praying for them that God will use them. Ev lots of different gifts. I think there's 30-some people uh, on the ship that goes down the Amazon, and uh, our team in Guatemala... Uh, they're going to be working with Students International and uh, working uh, using medical, uh, economic training, um, animal, uh, veterinary medicines in order to reach uh, groups of people with the gospel. And we are very excited because our Brazil team on the way back is going to spend, I think, 24 hours uh, in Manaus. Uh, some of our team is going to fly up to Manaus and spend some time in, uh, with a church that we have been supporting there that is doing ministry to Venezuelan refugees. We just sent another $6,000 to support them in that venture. Uh, they're housing them. Uh, if, if you don't watch the news, Venezuela is a mess, and people are desperately running. It has been amazing to hear these reports because the people that have left Venezuela are doctors, they're lawyers, they're dentists, they're professional people who, are, who have no way of making money. So they're running out of that country with their children and... Uh, uh, and they're, they're going across the border into Brazil, and we are participating in that, and maybe the Lord will allow us sometime to send some people to assist. But it's an exciting opportunity, so please be in prayer for our team, our teams in Guatemala and Brazil. And again, that's in the worship guide to uh, remind you. Um, I have some exciting news. Uh, this was put on my desk this week. This is the ceremonial ribbon-cutting roll. It's toilet paper. <laughs> if you're visiting, just bear with me. It's pretty much always this way. But the ladies' bathroom is finally open, yes. Yep. You can all get up and go get coffee now, all the ladies. If you, if you have been, if you're new, I'll just explain that we were functioning for the past 25 years on four stalls. For about 500 people, mostly of which are women, and there was a line. Now, you're going to have to make time to fellowship because now there's 10 stalls. Thank God. God is so good. He really is. Uh, so anyway, now we'll begin working on the men's side because we, we need more as well because we drink more coffee than the ladies. So, But uh, I, again, I want to thank you for giving. We're paying cash for all this. You know that we own this property. We are, we are debt-free at the moment, and that is such a wonderful thing, and we're doing both the men and women's bathroom. I, I, we're, as soon as this is done, we'll continue raising money for our adult discipleship wing right next door. It's been gutted as part of this, and once we have the money for that, we'll begin rebuilding on that. And, and God willing, we're going to be able to do all of this debt-free uh, because of your giving. So keep being faithful with it. If you're visiting, this is not your business. We just want you to enjoy the ladies' restroom if you're a lady. So having said that, if you're visiting, welcome to Carpenter's Way. We are a family whose father is God. We gather together each week. Uh, to study the scriptures. That's really what we do. We study the scriptures. And right now, we are in a 15-year series on the life. <laughs> just teasing. We're doing uh, a chronological look from scripture 
at the life of Jesus Christ. So what I'm doing is I'm syncing all four Gospels, and we're trying to, we're doing the best we can to walk through the ministry of Jesus Christ, actually the life of Christ, to see what we can learn from him. Because, uh, how do I say this? Christian doctrine has invaded what we perceive about Jesus Christ, and we want to go back to Scripture and find out what he says about himself. So that's what we're doing. Uh, having said that, this morning we're taking a little breather and doing a kind of a, a survey. I'm going to answer a couple questions that I've been getting asked um, from the scriptures, so we'll do that, and then we're going to have communion together. If you are visiting with us, you are welcome to join us in communion as long as you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not going to check your salvation card. That's between you and God, but we want you, uh, we want you to enjoy every part of our service, and it is an honor that we're here, uh, that you are here, and uh, thanks for being with us. If you're watching online, it's our hope that you're encouraged in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, lots of families on vacation that we're hearing from that are watching online. Thank you for watching, and um, um, I think that pretty much does it for the announcements. Um, I'm not going to cut the ribbon. We'll just pretend I did. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Uh, you can check out the worship guide for other activities and events. If you are visiting with us and uh, you'd like to know more about the church, my wife and I will be up here right after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions. It means a lot to us, like I said, that you're here, and we want you encouraged, first and foremost, in your relationship with God, and then, well, we'd love to have you plug in. Um, Having said that, we're taking our offering now, and if, if you are not part of the Carpenter's Way family, we just ask that you pass the plate. We don't want you distracted by money. Uh, those of us who attend here regularly uh, have, have committed to give to support our mission work across the globe and each other and the ministries the Lord allows us to do. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Lord, we do love you, <coughs> and um, the, the truth is our love for you doesn't change anything. It's your love for us that does, that you sent your son to to seek and save that which was lost, which is every person here until we, until we met you. <clears throat> Father, I pray um, that whether it be the songs that we sing or the, as we open the word and I make comments about it, Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would take the words of men and, and have them fade away so that the words of God would endure forever. Uh, your Holy Spirit is at work in every life here or watching online. Um, you are drawing people to yourself. For those of us who know you, you are working from the inside out. From those who don't know you, Father, your Holy Spirit is convicting people of sin and drawing them, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, we think of our, our family members, Father, in Guatemala and Brazil, and we ask that you keep them safe this week as they're away from family and us, and Father, make them effective for the kingdom. I pray that you would blow their minds with the Holy Spirit's presence and, and what you do through them. May many be saved, may others be encouraged, may lives be touched. Uh, Father, we know that everything good is, comes from the Father above. We know that anything eternal is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we don't ask that you make our people great for the kingdom. We ask that the great one who inhabits them, uh, empowers them, and works through them, Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for using us in this world. And Father, I pray today, as a result of being together, we would feel closer to you and more desire to obey you and to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most.
Yeah. 
singing that, I was wondering what it was like for Barbara Daly this week. She'd always sit right there and uh, sing with us. And uh, now she's celebrating heaven with the Lord, huh? It will soon be us, right? It will soon be us. How cool is that? Just remember that as the election comes around. People start hating on each other. I know you think they already did. Just give it time. Our king is on his throne. Our eternity is secure in the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that resurrected Christ. How great you are, God. Uh, let's, let's just take a moment and thank him and let's get into the word. Father, uh, there are certain songs, Lord Jesus, that just uh, touch my heart. Father, um, in this life you have shown yourself to be great, even before we were born and redeeming us and offering redemption and in our lives, you provide, guide, and protect us, even in difficulty. And then as David said, when this life is over, we go into the presence of God for eternity, and what a joy. And I pray, Father, that we would find our hope in you and nowhere else. May it not be found in politics or in wealth or in health or even in our religious background. May our hope be found in you alone, the person of Jesus Christ. And as we continue walking through your life and listening to you teach and talking about it, Lord Jesus, help us to hear your voice and not our own. In your name we pray, amen. Well, it's, uh, it sounds like there's been a lot of, uh, of learning going on as we're re-looking at Jesus from the scriptures. I'm getting a lot of feedback. And I, I just love the feedback. I appreciate the emails. Uh, I appreciate the comments and the questions. And uh, as we've looked at Jesus' life, I, I don't know that we can really appreciate just how ingrained certain teaching is that's simply not biblical that was taught maybe in Sunday school as children. I think one of the things that I remember from my childhood that is so not biblical and actually undermines the Trinity is the idea that the reason God created man was because he was lonely. I remember being taught that in good Sunday schools. Um, and uh, you, you grow up thinking God needs man, and the truth is he wasn't lonely. There's three of him. <laughs> he is self-satisfying. He is self-encouraging. Um, he created us to lavish love on us, um, to fulfill his attribute of, of relationability and to redeem mankind, to say to Satan, I'm better than you could ever possibly imagine. Uh, we are trophies of his mercy and his grace. Um, and th there's a lot of stuff, though, that's taught, that's taught to make us feel better, and it's taught based upon half-truths and, and, and parts of sentences in Scripture and not the whole context. And so what we're trying to do is very difficult. It is very difficult because we have to discipline ourselves to step back and say, okay, this is what I think is true, and this is what Scripture says is true. And as we have uh, gone through the life and ministries of Jesus, we're about a year and a half into the story. I, I said we're going to be in this for 14 years because we're really only just finishing the Sermon on the Mount last week, and, and that's about a little over a year into his ministry. Wait till we get the crucifixion. It's going to take him several years to die, so... But, but that's okay because we're talking about Jesus, right? I mean, that's really, I, I want to make it clear. We can talk about marriage and raising kids and morality, and we can talk about pro-life issues and all those things, and they're fine to talk about, but nothing is more important than Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
Really, seriously, nothing is more important than Jesus. If we miss this, we can be the most moral pro-life person alive, and we still spend eternity apart from God. And so it's really, really important that we go back and we find out what Jesus taught, what his miracles meant, what did he do? Because there's a, there's a bunch of junk out there. I mean, everybody's got a book based upon their preconceived ideas, and it's really hard for us to discipline ourselves, like I said, and go back and actually look at what he said and why he said it, because I'm, I'm pretty confident that a lot of you in this room have, have theologies that, that don't seem to mix with Scripture, but you're just like, put it on the back burner, and I'm going to trust what the pastors say, and I'm just going to move on. Because truthfully, well, let, let me get into this. Um, when we finished looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, in our newly married small group, which is a group Julie and I lead in our home, uh, and if you're newly married or you consider yourself newly married, you're welcome to join us, um, I got a really good question from someone. And uh, before our, we take communion together today, I thought it was a really good thing for us to tackle. And the question was asked, why doesn't Jesus come out and clearly say, hey, accept me and you can be saved? I mean, we have, we have the words of Paul and preachers today that say that. For instance, last week we ended the Sermon on the Mount with this, these verses from Romans 3, starting in verse 19. The law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. Now, if you haven't been with us, I want to take a break. I want you to look at what it says. The law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose. Okay, pause. The purpose of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament teachings, what are the purpose of them? According to Paul, it's to keep people from having excuses to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For about half of you or those who are visiting with us who have never heard this before, that should blow your mind. Because much of the teaching of the church, and I'm afraid even of the Baptist church and the Assemblies of God church, is that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to tell you how to live. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, according to Paul, is to show you how you can't live. That's what it says. You can not like it, you can resent it, you can walk away. But that's what Scripture says, and, and it goes on. For no one can ever be made right by, with God by keeping doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Wow, he, he doubled down on it. But now God shows us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was the promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God. Here we go. If you're wondering, how do I get right with God? He's about to answer it. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So when it says no matter who we are, Paul means whether you're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, white or black, whether no matter what your past sin is, no matter what your struggle is, whatever your temptation of your flesh, no matter who we are, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. Verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. If you believe that Jesus Christ just forgives sin and nobody pays for it, you are misled. Somebody did pay for our sins, Jesus Christ. It wasn't just thrown away, it was put on Jesus. Very important. When we get to Easter of next year and you celebrate the crucifixion or we get around the table, do not forget, your sin was not just wiped out, it was put on Jesus. That death, when you watch the movie The Passion or you watch movies or you hear people talking about what it was like to be crucified, that was on Jesus. He died in your place. That's, it's called propitiation. It means just what it says. It means that he took your penalty in his body on the cross. Your sin was not just forgotten, it was taken. Very important. 
For God presented Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That is clear. That's clear. You, you cannot like what I say about it. You can reject me. You can reject whatever, but you can't reject Scripture. If the Bible is our authority, if that is the final statement of truth, that is the truth. And, you, and, you, and, and so I just, as we go through these things and you struggle with them, I just want you to remember that Scripture is the thing you need to believe, not me. I grew up under Tim LaHaye. He was my pastor. And every Sunday night, he taught us another reason he believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. Good for Tim. He's home now. It doesn't really matter if the rapture will take place pre, post, or mid. I don't know what it is. I'm mostly pre, probably because I grew up hearing that. But does it really matter if I walk with God? God's got a plan. He's got it all worked out, and I need to trust him. And every Sunday night of my whole upbringing, you know those books, Left Behind series that he and Jerry B. Jenkins wrote? Yeah, that's the novel based upon the stuff I grew up learning every Sunday night. Every Sunday night. Every Sunday night. Tim LaHaye knew more about the rapture than Jesus Christ, apparently. And I, and I don't fault him for that. It's fun to have that discussion. But the truth is, there's a lot of stuff we teach on that we don't know. I make the joke all the time. I'm a huge fan of Billy Graham, but he wrote a 600-page book on angels. The Bible doesn't have 600 words on angels. I, I think sometimes we spend a lot of our time on the wrong stuff. So, so we need to obsess over what Scripture says, and this says what it says. In verse 25, it says, Jesus, or God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, when you read that out of Romans chapter 3 in the New Living Translation, it's not a paraphrase, it's a translation. When you read that, you can understand why somebody will say, why didn't Jesus just say that? I mean, wouldn't it have been quicker for him to say that? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. In last week's message from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually makes it clear that nobody's able to keep the standards of God. He makes it clear. Therefore, without some other way, none of us are going to heaven. And in fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says you're going to hell. That's what he says. I know today we don't like to talk about it. We don't like the word hell. It makes us cringe a little bit and we kind of freak out. People are going to be offended who aren't going to heaven anyway. But, but the truth is Jesus brought up hell more than he did heaven. You may not be aware of that, but he talked a lot about it. In Romans chapter 3, Paul clearly says, uh, says it the other way, that Jesus is the Savior and is actually the way God made it possible for us to be saved and right with God outside of the law. Jesus finishes it, or, or Paul finishes it. Again, the question I got last week was, why doesn't Jesus just say it at the Sermon on the Mount? Why doesn't he just come out clearly? And, and that led me to think, you know, there's a lot of us who probably think the teachings of Jesus are different than the teachings of Paul. And actually, Julie and I had a significant conversation this week that a lot of people think the answer to that is, well, Jesus was teaching Jews, so he was speaking law-oriented. Well, I got to tell you something. What you don't, when you grow up, when you grow up or you go to church and, or go to seminary or Bible school and the stories of Jesus' life and ministry are broken down as individual stories of things and we try to learn everything about God from individual stories, instead of looking at the full context of what's going on, you end up with half the story or 25% of the story or one story at a time. The truth is that if you want to understand Jesus Christ, you've got to study the whole Gospels. You, you can't just pick a story because you like it, like him making the blind guy see or, or raising Lazarus from the dead. Those are wonderful stories, but they fit into a context as a whole. For instance, if I were to ask you this morning, why did, God, why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? 
There might be lots of answers in this room to comfort Mary and Martha because they asked for it or because he liked Lazarus or the disciples needed to see it. But the answer is, is because that is when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This is just weeks before he's crucified. And what he's doing is he's lighting the, 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 the stick of dynamite to his crucifixion. It actually says at the end, it is at that point that they began to, to actually plan to crucify him. The reason he raised Lazarus from the dead was to say, I am powerful even over death. It's time. Let's get it on. He was lighting the fuse. And now, when you hear stories about raising Lazarus from the dead, you don't get that. What you get is you get, uh, look how powerful he is, which is true. And you get, look how much he cared for Mary and Martha, which is true. And we get Jesus wept, which was my favorite verse in Sunday school because I got a piece of candy for every verse I memorized. It's the shortest verse in the Bible in the King James. So whenever I had a substitute teacher and they asked for, did anybody memorize the verse? I'd raise my hand and go, John 11:35. 35, Jesus wept. Candy, now you know why I'm a diabetic. Be sure your sin will find you out, right? I mean, the, the, the truth is, the, the truth is that, that there's a context, and I want to say this morning that Jesus was as clear, if not more clear than Paul. He was abundantly clear. The gospel does not change from the Old Covenant to the New. By faith, under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, you trusted that God, you may not have known his name to be Yeshua, but you knew that God was going to send a Messiah to redeem you, and by faith, you trusted him for that, and that faith saved you. Now we look back on Jesus the Messiah, and we say, by faith, I believe that God has taken my sin and applied it to him 2,000 years ago on the cross, and I trust him for salvation. The truth is, when it comes to sinfulness and righteousness, we're all in the same boat. I want to show you this morning that during Jesus' ministry, he said exactly what Paul said in his clearest terms. For instance, last week at the Sermon on the Mount, we were about a year to a year and a half into his ministry, as I've already said, of a three-and-a-half-year ministry. I want to remind you that from the first weeks of his ministry, so Jesus gets baptized, I call it the coronation, and then remember immediately following, uh, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. When he's done with that, he comes back, and, and Jesus starts trekking with a couple guys that he calls to be his disciples. And you remember that he, one of the first things he does is he goes back to Nazareth for a wedding, and he turns water into wine. But right after that, he takes his disciples, and they go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember now all the studying we've been doing? See, because each week builds upon another week. But he takes him to Jerusalem for the Passover, and that's when he turns the tables over, and he does miraculous things in the temple area during that. And then you'll remember, you are familiar with this even if you haven't been in the study because you remember a few days into it, a guy named Nicodemus, who Jesus calls the greatest teacher of his time, comes to Jesus at night to do what I call negotiate. What he wants to do is Jesus has offended the religious leaders, but they have seen his power. So they send Nicodemus at night to come and negotiate a peace treaty between Jesus and the religious leaders. They want to figure out how they fit together. Let's come together. Let's make Jerusalem and Hebrew and Judaism great again. They had little red caps. That's where that comes from. You can laugh. That's not true. Do not Google that. You won't find it. But the truth is, that's what they wanted. How can we get this Jesus guy to make, I mean, he's got, he's got, well, we don't have supernatural power. I mean, we can teach, but look what he's doing. So they try to negotiate. And you remember as we talked, Jesus gets, cuts, cuts Nicodemus off in the first few verses uh, of, of the conversation. And he says to Nicodemus, hey, unless a man is born again or born from above, he will not see the kingdom of God. That had to be a slap in his face. 
Because he was coming there to figure out what, what grounds they were on. And you remember Jesus hijacks the conversation by saying, I know what you want to know, but let me tell you something. One thing we can't negotiate on is how a person is saved. Unless a man be born from above or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, remember, goes into a weird question. Well, how can a man be back in his mother's womb? And, and they have that question. And it gets to the verse that everybody, saved or unsaved, know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 3. I, I'm salvation. It's through me. Nicodemus is freaked out and he leaves. We believe that Nicodemus is, is saved at a later time because he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, take Jesus' dead body and they deal with it. But the fact is that Jesus was clear from the very beginning. In fact, I want to read this for you. Well, I just told you, so we're going to skip that passage. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. If you want eternal life, I'm the only way. This isn't the only time in the first year of Jesus' ministry either. Jesus then returns to Nazareth in the synagogue. Remember we talked about this? And, he, and they ask him to stand up and preach. So he actually sits down as the rabbi, and he opens the scripture, and he reads Isaiah, which talks about the coming Messiah, the sacrificial lamb. And he ends it, and he closes it, and he says, I'm him. Do you remember the response of the Nazarenes? Nazar people from Nazareth, sorry. Not the Nazarenes as a denomination. Remember their response? Somebody tell me what they did. That's right, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Why would they do that? They didn't like what he was teaching. What was he teaching? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Oh, I forgot that one. You see, Jesus wasn't ambiguous. He was very, very clear. He had come to save them. Then we go to the story of the guy who's healed at the pool of Bethesda. Or Bethesda. The guy has uh, been sick. He's been there for 38 years. It has caused him to be lame. Jesus heals this guy, and he runs off. So Jesus goes to find him in the temple, and he taps him on the shoulder in the temple grounds. He says, hey, man. I'm glad that you are healed, but if you don't turn from your sin, worse things are going to happen. Basically, Jesus is saying, you may be physically well, but hell is coming if you don't repent. His response, if you recall, was to go tell the temple leaders that Jesus was there, come get him. He turned them in. So the religious leaders come to Jesus, and they start accusing him of stuff, and he just stands up and says, and, it, and remember we took a whole week and talked about this, because he starts explaining who he was, and this is the passage where he clearly says, I'm God. And he tells in the middle of that, I've come to save you. And their response? This is when they actually decide that he's not God, he's a blasphemer, and now they're going to kill him. They don't decide how they're going to kill him at this point, but they decide that he is worthy of death as a blasphemer. So to be clear, I've already laid out for you several cases where Jesus clearly said, I'm here to save you. I am the salvation. And, he, and in, in, um, in that text also, uh, he, he actually says that John the baptizer already told you who I am, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the problem is the reason we think Jesus' teaching is different than Paul's teaching or we don't think about it, but he teaches more difficultly than Paul or not as clean as Paul, is because Jesus didn't say it just once. He said it over and over again. And one of the mistakes of our modern way of thinking is we break every story down into its own thing. We hear about Jesus healing a guy who comes through the ceiling. Uh, Chad preached on this. We, we think of a, of a lame guy getting healed. And what do we talk about? The lame guy getting healed. The point of that story 
when, when the roof is taken up, you know what I'm talking about? Jesus is teaching, and then they, they, they lower him through the ceiling. And we talk about Jesus' ability to heal lame people. Well, that's fine, but actually, if you want to know what the story's about, look at what happens right after. People start questioning him, because the first thing he said is, your sin is forgiven. He did that to tick them off, because it opened the door for them to say, who do you think you are to forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin, and Jesus' response to that is, and? For those of you who aren't as hip as me, that's code for, yeah, I am God. I'll answer any other question you have for me today. Well, they don't ask more questions. They just get mad because they don't like what he has to say. They don't, like, they don't like him being God because immediately if he's God, they have to bow the knee. People have a preconceived idea. They, let me be clear. They didn't mind being Jews. They just didn't want to be God's Jews. His teaching was tough. And I would argue that even today, there's a lot of people that want to be Christians. Let's be real. Nobody wants to go to hell. They just don't want to be God's Christians. And that's where our confusion comes in. In fact, in last week's text, Jesus basically on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this was interesting to hear your response on this, but now you see it as a whole. It's been taught to you in pieces, right? And we start with the Beatitudes, and we all go, we've got to work harder for the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were not instructive. They were reflective. You're supposed to look at the Beatitudes and go, do I live like that? Because Jesus isn't saying you need to be more loving, you need to be more merciful, you need to be more humble, you need to seek me more. He's actually saying those who inherit the kingdom of God are more merciful, they seek righteousness, they do these things. It's because of who you are that you act this way is what Jesus is teaching. It's not how you get there. And then he goes on to explain uh, that, that we all fall short. And remember, he, he starts like a series of, of statements. He says, you have been taught that if you commit adultery, uh, that you're unworthy of the kingdom or something like that. He says, well, I tell you that if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Oh, no, not for me, for you. Then he goes on to say, you have heard it said that if you murder, you're not worthy of, the, of my father. And everybody goes, yeah, those silly murders. And he goes, well, I tell you, if you ever called somebody a, an idiot, <laughs> that's, that's the one I got most texts on this week. You're an idiot for believing that, Pastor. <laughs> You're going to hell. The, the fact is, that's what Jesus taught. And his goal wasn't to get people to go, oh, I'm such a loser. He wants people to go, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Because he builds up to a point where, look at Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. It's going to be up there in a second. It's almost on the screen. I'll read it to you, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. That's Matthew 7, 7 and 8. I, okay, look, look, I understand that Jesus teaches like me. And he's got that robe with that blue sash and long flowing hair. And he speaks like an English statesman. That's not Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter from a small no-name town that was completely disrespected. And he spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak high Hebrew. And he said to people, ask. Come on. Uh, what should they ask? Whatever's on their mind. You see, in the story of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was beginning a relationship with people. What he did was scare them to show them the expectations and standards of God are way beyond theirs so that they would say, well, how can anybody be saved? But they don't ask that in this story. 
They don't seek it. They don't knock. And Jesus actually invites them to. And you might say, what are you supposed to know to ask? What were they supposed to ask him after the Sermon on the Mount? Just, just for a second, forget it's the Sermon on the Mount. If you believe that Jesus was God and he came up here today and he spoke to you and he said, look, you all are spiritually in deep doo-doo. You are not going to heaven. You've all screwed up really, really bad. Go ahead and ask questions. If you really believed he was God, and had the keys to life and death in his hands, you would raise your hand. You would interrupt him. You would say, whoa, 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 I, have, I am a member of a church. I've been going to church my whole life. You're telling me that nothing I've done has made me good enough? That's the kind of question you ask. When Jesus says, ask, knock, seek, he's going, come on. This is about you and me here. This isn't about doctrine, and it isn't about church attendance, and it isn't about getting this thing figured out. It's about me, a relationship that involves seeking and following and questioning. You see, Jesus did not come. Let me say it a different way. The problem with how we think today in the way that we've been geared is we think first, foremost, and for many of us completely just about hell. That's not what Jesus came to do. In fact, if you read what Jesus teaches, he constantly talks about having a right relationship with his Father. This was about a relationship, not a location. People, whether they're Jews or even modern Christians, want a to-do list of religious activity that gets us into heaven. Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, going to church, church membership, not committing adultery, whatever they are, we want a list because then we can know that we know that we're going to heaven because if we're really, really honest, at the end of the day, what's in our hearts is not a relationship with God first and foremost. It's just heaven. We just want to go to heaven. We, we'll worry about you and me later. Right now, I just want me and me. That is what we're doing, right? I, I just want to make this clear. I realize that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. And yeah, the realizing that judgment is coming, Jesus talked about all the time, but that was not the end of his statement. In fact, I would argue that the reason Jesus didn't make it super clear every time he spoke is because he wanted to separate those who were really seeking him and those who just wanted heaven. In case you're not clear, that's why he spoke in parables. He says it himself in Matthew. It's, it, it cracks me up a little bit to hear people talk about why Jesus spoke in parables. One of the things that um, some hipper churches do is they like to use illustrate. They say Jesus spoke in parables so that people could understand. The problem with that is Jesus actually said in Matthew the reason he spoke in parables is so people couldn't understand. Well, pastor, why would Jesus not want people to understand? Because he wanted them to seek, ask, and knock. This was never just about heaven and hell. This was about a relationship with the living God through his son Jesus. Jesus' primary concern was not getting people out of hell, although he doesn't want people to go to hell. He and his father wanted a relationship that involved more than a moment in time, but actually relating to each other through dialogue, which would involve questions, answers, and seeking and knocking. Seekers seek. People avoiding hell without a relationship with God want one thing they must do, and bam, it's done. And they can go on with their lives like the nine Jewish lepers. Remember the story of the ten lepers? 
Within the context of the New Testament, it makes absolute sense. You have 10 people that have leprosy. They come to Jesus. They scream across the street, Master, heal us. Nine are Jews. They yell from across the street. Jesus says, "Go go to the temple, and they'll declare you clean. That was totally traditional. You needed to go. The priest would declare you clean. They would say, your sin is forgiven. Your your body is clean, so come back. They all start heading back to the temple. On their way back to the temple, they all realize they're clean. It's just the Samaritan that runs back to Jesus, forgets himself, falls at his feet, wraps his arm around his feet. Why? Because only one wanted a relationship. The other nine just wanted to heal him. Whoa. You mean God will allow people to get healed and not have a relationship with them? Apparently so. Now, that should scare you, my friends, because we live in a time where people are giving you And Satan might even give you a miracle, as long as it keeps you from Jesus. You see, that's why Jesus' teaching is a little tougher than Paul's. We love the grace message. We just have moved away from the repentance message. You know, Paul taught repentance as well. In fact, Jesus taught it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in me, there is a condition. Maybe I'm wrong on something. I've said forever, there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's one, and that's believe on Jesus Christ. Run to him. Seek, knock, ask. But this was not, I want to make it clear, the reason that Jesus' teaching can be tough at times is because his point, his goal, was not to keep people out of hell. His goal, first and foremost, was to get people to relate to him and his Father, to have a relationship. In fact, I want you to understand, and and again, we are uh, like Pavlov's dogs, just we we grow up in a culture, we're comfortable with it. But please understand that the Baptist view of discipleship, and I would argue the evangelical view, is false. The evangelical view of discipleship is a class you take from four to six weeks after you accept Christ. You learn some basic things, and then you go on with your life. That is not what discipleship is. Discipleship means, well, a a disciple in Jesus' life at the time of Christ was not an academic exercise of systematic theology. They lived with him. They listened to him. They learned every moment of every day as they watched him do miracles and teach. They would ask him questions. They would ask for clarification. And when people didn't like it, a lot of them left. Many of them. Because they didn't like what he taught over and over in the Gospels. And we're not even there yet. This is about to happen in our teachings. But but a lot of times you're going to hear people say, I'm leaving because his teachings are too hard. You see, when you say their teachings are too hard, or in our modern vernacular of it, I refuse to believe in a God who, and you can fill in the blank for that, What we're basically saying is I'm coming to God with preconceived ideas, and if he'll save me, and he keeps talking in ways that I like, I will follow him. That's not discipleship. That's your own religion that you've created, and Jesus just fits that as long as you can make him fit it. The truth is a true disciple of Jesus follows him and learns from him, not invokes his own ideas on him. You go to the scriptures and you study or you follow him in his day, and and, and when he teaches hard things, you don't walk away. You go, whoa, I'm wrong. You see, the problem with followers of Judaism, and I would argue Christianity today, is too many of us go into, come into this with having been lied to. Jesus never promised to fix your marriage. Not once. He never promised to give you good kids. He never promised that you would not die of cancer. He didn't promise that life wouldn't be difficult. He didn't promise that. In fact, he promises quite the opposite. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And he actually said, when you come to the end of yourself, that's when I'll kick in. I give grace in the moment. But if you you want the truth, most of us want heaven and our own flesh. And I've got news for you. That doesn't exist. You will find yourself in hell if you do that. 
let me keep going here. So Jesus says at the Sermon on the Mount, you can enter the kingdom of God only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Pretty clear. Although at that moment, he doesn't say who the gate is. Because he just said four verses ahead, ask, seek, knock. You should have gone, love the illustrations, master. Where do I find that gate? Nobody wants to go to hell. The fear of judgment is the beginning of meeting God. It's not the end. It's the beginning. We don't know how long after this. But it isn't long after. It might actually be the next day because the Gospel of John does not do it in order. But look at this, John 10. Here it goes. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I'm the gate for the sheep. Now, now pause. Why is this significant to Mark? Because these people are following Jesus every moment of every day. He said just a short time earlier that you have to go through the gate, that the road is narrow, and the gate, it's the only way. That, and, and the road to destruction is wide. Lots of people are going to go there. So it's in your brain. When Jesus sits, you sit. When Jesus stands, he stands. When Jesus eats, you eat. When, when Jesus sleeps, you sleep. And now we're walking along, and he goes, and they're walking out in the fields. Could have been the next day. And he looks at a sheep pen, and they're looking, and there's a gate. The guy, the under-shepherd is laying across it. We'll talk about that more as we get there. But he's, he's watching, and Jesus goes, I'll tell you the truth. I'm the gate for the sheep. Keep going. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep, they don't listen to him. Yep, I'm the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. That's pretty clear. If you're paying attention and you're following Jesus, and he says, seek, knock, ask, you go, whoa, where are the hinges? How do I go through you? See, that's the question you have when you have a discipleship relationship. He's your rabbi. You follow him. You seek. You ask. You knock. You search harder. Because this was never about heaven and hell. That's a side benefit. This was about a relationship. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God's unchanging plan since the beginning of time was to adopt us as his children. And, and, and we have in our effort to, to swell our numbers and church attendance and baptism and, and, and to be proud of what we're doing in this world, we have tried to make it as painless and easy as possible, when in reality, although the gate is easy to find, the walk is very complicated. Because it takes more trust to walk with Him than it took to get saved by Him. Which is why I believe most people don't want to be walk with Him. But that's the difficulty. So many of us, just like many of those who claim for a while to be Jesus' disciples, just want a, a quick step-by-step how-to lesson on how to live their best life now. Yes, I picked that title for a reason. Or how about Become the I Am? That's another Christian book you can buy at any Christian bookstore. I want to make it clear. Jesus Christ did not come to make you a better version of yourself. He came to take what is dead and bring it to life. He came to change it. He came to make you like himself. Well, that's kind of arrogant. When you're God, you can do that. And I would remind you, my friends, you don't have to follow him. You can do it your own way. You can try to be good enough. You can try to make your way. You can whatever. 
But I assure you, if you don't follow or go through that gate, there's no eternal life. That's the tough stuff. It is just through Jesus that there's salvation. Jesus came not merely to save us from hell. That's a benefit of what he came to do. What he actually came to do was make us right with God so that we can now walk with him every day, learning, listening, seeking, all the while, whether we recognize it or not, we are being transformed into him from the inside out. And we don't even know it. Remember the the Beatitudes. This is the description of the man or woman that the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is a better translation, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for your great reward awaits you in heaven. In many cases, we don't even recognize that, um, that we're doing things for the kingdom. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats where he separates the righteous from the unrighteous. And Jesus begins by saying, well done, now good and faithful servants. And they say, when did we do those things? He said, you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You took me in when I was homeless. And the sheep actually go, what are you talking about? And he says, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. All these stories, they don't conflict. It's the whole picture. You see, the child of God, man or woman, white or black, rich or poor, does not seek his own flesh or her own flesh in this life. They seek to honor God. They want to walk with him. They ask, they seek, they knock. They continue searching because they want to know him, not be right. Did you hear what I just said there? It's not about being right. It's about knowing him. And for many of us, we... Like the Jews, we took off our thinking caps and just trusted a rabbi. We like what they say. It works. They've given us a worldview that fits. And the problem is they're wrong. I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 2 that you know very well. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were, under God, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so very much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to, point to us in all future ages of, as examples of his incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. Stop. Do you realize what we've done with this verse? I know I talk about it all the time, but it's being done more. This verse says the subject of who you are and the special nature that you now have is God's work. You're God's masterpiece. We've turned it around and made it some psychobabble that makes you feel good about yourself. I feel fat. Yes, but you're God's masterpiece. The context of this has nothing to do with how fat or skinny you are. I always use my nose. 
we Wilkies, as we get older, get what is known as the eagle beak. It will grow. If I live to be 900, it will be actually out here. It's just how it works. It's not pretty, but it does cover up my expanding waistline. I mean, the truth is there's imperfection all over that. You know it. You've been living with me for 14 years. There's lots of faults here. And I shouldn't feel better about myself because I'm God's masterpiece because he's not saying you're pretty in my eyes. What he is saying is I'm retooling you. You were dead anyway. I raised you to life. You're the resurrection in my power. You see, what this verse actually says is we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew. That means it's not what we were. It's new. I'm a new creation in Christ. So we can do good things he planned for us long ago. It is only as his masterpiece that I can do anything good in the first place. Yet oftentimes the Jews, and now the church, likes to teach you how good you can become. I've got news for you. You aren't good. You can't be good. You never will be outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit working within you, and the transformation process in your life. Okay, but what does that have to do with Jesus' teaching? So I started you at the baptism, the coronation, and I brought you to Nicodemus in the conversation took you to the middle of his ministry at the Sermon on the Mount, and then followed up with, I am the gate. Now I want, you to ta- I want to take you to weeks before Jesus Christ is arrested to a story Jesus tells, an illustration that is a summation of all that is true about salvation. John 15. And this is going to absolutely freak some of you out. So gird your loins for action. That's a, that's a, I don't know what it means, but it's a, it's a biblical phrase, and I felt good using it. John 15, verse 1. I am the true grapevine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You need a second to let that sink in? He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's been severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch that withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted, and you will produce much fruit. You are my true disciples. This brings, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to uh, my Father. I have loved you even as the Father loved me. Remain in my love. Oh, no. And anybody paying attention that believes Jesus Christ is God, the sovereign one who who is the judge, looks at that and goes, "Uh, I better start looking to make sure I have fruit because this says if I don't have fruit, that I'm not rooted in him, and therefore I am going to be burned. And yes, he's talking about judgment. You want to know why we're afraid of that? Because instead of running to the gardener, we would rather debate doctrine. You see, the truth is, if you saw fruit in your life, and I'm not talking about people saved, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit's transforming process in your life or in your spouse, you wouldn't, this wouldn't freak you out. And why is that a problem? Because we have been geared to believe that an act, a moment in time, walking an aisle is the proof that you're saved. It's not. 
Even Billy Graham said he's afraid that 80% of the people that walked aisles through his years in life do not know Jesus Christ. Just because you're put in water doesn't make you saved. Ask Judas. Just because you're part of the right team, ask Judas. Doesn't make you saved. Well, then, preacher, how do I know I'm saved? Fruit. You see, the point of Jesus coming was to make us adoptable, right? To remove the sin, take the punishment of our sin, so that we could have a relationship with God. If you have a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit literally comes in and begins the transformation process. Would you put up 2 Corinthians 3.18 for me, please? It's worth waiting for. I'll read it. (laughs) So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Louise, it's the last verse I gave you. Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the truth is, when Jesus used the illustration of the vine and the branches, the key is, if we're grafted into him, are we connected to him or are we connected to Baptist? Are we connected to him or Assembly of God or Evangelical or my mom's faith or my dad's faith? Are you connected to a moment in time where you walked an aisle, or does your life reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Let me be clear. If you are living in blatant sin, unrepentant, you have reason to fear hell, even if you grew up in the church. That's what Jesus taught. Well, I don't like Jesus. I like Paul better. You know why you like Paul better? Because we can take Paul's words and twist them a little bit. Jesus wasn't quite as, well, Paul was teaching doctrine. Jesus was teaching life. You see, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to know that you're saved, you have to be his disciple. And part of that is denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following him. That's what Jesus taught. Well, Jesus seems to teach you can lose your salvation. No, Jesus teaches you were never never rooted in the root. That's what Jesus is teaching. He says if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off. If you do bear fruit, you're going to be pruned. Well, I don't want to be cut by the gardener. You're going to be cut by the gardener. You see, this is about walking with Jesus, asking, knocking, being with him. It's about knowing him. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It is not about hell or heaven. If that were the case, we should just put heaven up here. We should just talk about how to get to heaven. We should come up with five simple ways for you to get to heaven. The problem is there's only one, and it is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you ask any priest how you know that you are a child of God, they will not be able to tell you. They will tell you, well, there are ways. Uh, You go to church, you take uh, the Eucharist, you... And and hopefully at the end of your life, if you go to a Catholic funeral, they will throw out to you. And I'm not dogging the Catholics. The Roman Catholic doctrine teaches this. You will hear them declare at the beginning of the funeral that this is a saved person. And the the rest of the service is actually begging God to take them into heaven. Why? Because they don't know. Yet John wrote, I have written these things so that you might know you have eternal life. Well, preacher, how do I know I have eternal life? By your fruit. Next question. I don't have fruit then run back to the Savior. Don't run to your pastor to argue doctrine. I believe that once the Holy Spirit plants himself in your heart, you can't lose your salvation. There you go, eternal security. The question is not whether or not, uh, whether or not you can lose your salvation. The question is whether we're saved. Well, how can you make this statement? Because it looks to me like a lot of people aren't saved. 
in the same way that it looks like a lot of people at Jesus' time were just Jewish. They weren't looking for a Messiah. They were looking for their chosen Messiah. I got news for you. Jesus Christ left us here to reach a gay culture, to reach a culture full of illegal aliens, homeless people, religious people. He left us here not to be comfortable and safe, but to actually do what he did and be criticized for it. The truth is, Jesus saves. A relationship with Jesus is what saves you. And yes, it begins by you asking, knocking, and seeking. Save me. Okay, I'm not going to hell. See you in heaven. That's not how this works. And if you believe that, you have been lied to, my friends. That's why Jesus' teachings are often conflicting. Because what we want is salvation from hell. See you when I get there. And the only time we really seek him is when we get cancer diagnosed. That is not what Jesus wants from his children. That is not what he wants from disciples. What he wants is a daily seeking, knocking, asking, a walking. When he sits, you sit. When he stands, you stand. When he eats, you eat. Well, I don't, I don't want to live such a selfless life. You don't have to, but don't call yourself a child of God. You are not grafted into the branch. You're not grafted in. How do I know? I don't have the time because we're going to have communion. But Galatians 5 says what the fruit of the flesh is. And it says at the end of the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5, anyone who lives this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who are led by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, the fruit of their life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, they're forgiving, they're humble, they're merciful, they seek righteousness. We are to be fruit inspectors of our own hearts first. And ask ourselves, not based upon what we want, but what we are, am I connected to the vine? Am I abiding in Jesus? Am I resting in Him? If you are not, humble yourself and run back to the gardener. I'm going to ask, well, all of my elders, or most of my elders are on mission trips. Darn them. So I'm going to ask whoever's going to help us with communion this morning to make their way up front. It's going to be a hodgepodge group of just normal Christians. <laughs> but you're good looking, guys. You look great. Guys, <laughs> bless your heart. I did not call him a moron. I meant at that time. Listen, I, I know, especially if you're visiting, you're like, well, that guy's a Baptist preacher. I'm not. I'm not a Baptist. You can ask anybody you came with. I just want to know God through his word, and I want you to. I want you to know God. I want you to walk with God. More than you walk with us, I want you to walk with God. I want you to know him. <sighs> Run to Jesus. Run to him. Ask, seek, knock. He is the only one that can save you. Not keeping the law, you'll never be good enough. His grace is a true story, but you've got to tie into him. This is what it is. If you confess Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, that means you surrender control of your life. This is not a heaven and hell thing. It's a God thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an adoption relationship thing. We're going to take communion here, and here's what I'm going to challenge you to do today. If you're thinking about all this, and you're going, man, I'm scared because I don't see a lot of fruit, you don't have to walk an aisle or go to a pastor or figure out doctrine. Go to the gardener right now. 
I don't care if you got saved at four years of age. Go back to the gardener. Tell him. Ask. Seek. Knock. What are you thinking? Tell him what you're thinking. I, I don't know if I'm saved or not, so help me. Save me. You think God's going to go, oh, that's a dumb statement. What makes us so arrogant? If there's no fruit, ask him why. Tell him to make you fruitful. Tell him you can't do it without him. Tell him you're his masterpiece. Go to God. I don't know why we avoid God with doctrine. We've replaced him with doctrine. Go to Jesus right now. He's listening. And then take this in joy. Trust that he's going to answer your prayer. He'll start this afternoon when you have an urge to sin and you know you don't have to and you'll get to choose. That's what it sounds like. Okay, I could keep preaching, but we've already run out of time. So we're going to take the world's fastest communion. Double time, boys. Listen. Go ahead and start passing it out. Listen, there's joy in this. That's why we can laugh. This is, this is not going to save you. This is going to remind you. It's going to remind you what he did. He hung out with us for 33 years, misunderstood, mocked, teased, uh, ridiculed. Even his own disciples doubted him. He did it so that we could be saved, my friends. Not saved just from hell, but from ourselves. So wherever you're at this morning, cry out to him. If you do not know him today, tell him. Tell him you want to be saved. And you know he's the only one that can save you. You'll never be good enough. Even if you grew up in the church, if your life doesn't reflect the fruit of the Spirit, then tell him you want the Spirit to control you. Go ahead and talk to your daddy. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I want to talk to you for a second. I want to explain what we're doing. Uh, this is matzah bread. It's uh, Jewish unleavened bread is what it is, and we break it into small pieces. The reason we do that is because right before Jesus was arrested in the Last Supper, they took this bread and they broke it, and Jesus said, pay attention, boys. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he's trying to help them understand what's about to happen. He's going to be broken so that they could have a relationship with his Father. In a moment... We're going to take grape juice, and it was wine in Jesus' times. It's just that people struggle with alcohol, and so we use grape juice. And it's the color of blood. Jesus was willing to have his body broken so his blood could be shed. And the Scripture says that through the shedding of blood, there's forgiveness for our sins. If you have never asked for God to forgive your sin, or you realize today that you've never given your life to him, just tell him right now and take communion with us. It's not a religious act. It's a surrender act of your will. That's all it is. Tell him you know you're a sinner and he's the only one that can save you. I need him to save me too. <laughs> Probably more than most of you. The things that I preach to you, I, haven't, I, I may understand in my head to some degree, but I've got to tell you something. My flesh still fights him. I'm just like him. But God's grace is sufficient. And every day as I walk with him, I knock, I seek, I ask. When I blow it, I thank Him for grace. And I get up and I keep moving. Take a moment and talk with Him.
this part of communion reminds us that Jesus was willing to live and suffer and die for us. This, this wasn't just about the cross. This was about the fact that he was willing to put up with life so that we could hear the story and understand. If he was willing to do that for us, for you, the question is, are you willing to do that for him? Will you allow your will to be broken for his will? I know you want what you want. We all want what we want or we wouldn't struggle with sin. Amen? Right, you guys? I mean, I, I want to tell you a lie. Uh, the lie is that we not only seek righteousness, we like it all the time. That's a lie. Get cut off in traffic. You cut a pastor off in traffic, you're going to find out. You play softball with a pastor, he plays first base, you're going to find out what's in his heart real fast. The truth is we all struggle. The problem isn't when you struggle, it's when you don't struggle. If he did this for us, are we willing to do this for him? Let's take in remembrance of him. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this for us. And thank you for your word that is clear, even if it's uncomfortable. Now, Father, help us return the obedience you had to the Father with our obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I mentioned before, it was through the shedding of blood, not just Jesus coming, that, that sins are forgiven. And so Jesus was willing even to be put on a cross. The night he was betrayed, he actually prayed that his father remove this cup from him. <laughs> the man, Jesus, looked around and said, I don't know. I don't know if these people are worth it. I don't know if I want to go through with it. I don't know. And then he said, but not my will, Father, yours be done. It was even hard for him to obey the Father. But he did it. And now if you confess your sin, 1 John says, he is faithful and he's just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You will be cleansed. So run to him. Not a one and done time. Run to him and give your life to him. All of it. 3 a.m., 7 a.m., 10 a.m., when he gets up, you get up. When he sits down, you sit down. When he eats, you eat. When he breathes, you breathe. Walk with him. He's inviting you to walk with him. Would you talk with your Heavenly Father? teenagers in here. This isn't your parents, God. It's yours. Whether your parents walk with God or not is not the point. The question is, will you walk with Him? Young adults, this is not an old people's faith or religion. This is your soul. God is inviting you to walk with He's not asking you to mimic anybody else's faith. He's asking you to walk with him. When he stands, you stand. When he sits, you sit. When he teaches, you listen. You don't evaluate him based upon your own understanding. You trust him for what he says. 
my senior friends, and catching up with you very quickly. Are we willing to walk away from what we were taught that is not biblical and follow Jesus? I'm not asking you to follow what I say. I'm just asking you to read the scriptures for yourself. When you look at your life, I know that you're a branch. The question is, do you see the fruit of being grafted into the tree, to the root, the vine? If you don't, run to the garden. did this for us, you guys. In 2019, he did this for us. So that we could sit here today and evaluate whether what the fruit looks like and actually go, wow, I need to be grafted in more. I need to give up control. Or, I'm sure glad I'm saved by his work and not my own. We do this remember it's what he did. Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient. And now, Father, we give you control of this church once again. Sorry we sometimes forget it's yours. I worry about logistics. Those are not a concern of yours. We as elders too too often spend time thinking about making good choices when we should be thinking about what are God's choices for us. We as men who lead our families We too often think about what we want. How do I balance out my personal time and my family time when we should be thinking about what does God want me to do? As moms, we should be asking ourselves, what honors the Lord as I raise my kids? As wives, how do I serve my God in my marriage? As husbands, how do I serve my wife as I serve God? As teenagers, how does my high school campus become a mission field? Make us disciples of Jesus. When you rise, we rise. When you sit, we sit. You breathe, we breathe. Help us to adapt your worldview to our relationships. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Bible study is going to start in about five minutes, so I'm going to dismiss you to that at this time. If you're visiting with us and you would like to talk with me, I'd love to meet you and uh, tell you more about the church. God bless you guys.